welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for May 20th, 2016. I'm your host, Brian Cardile. I'm the editor of the Daily Appellate Report, a print supplement to the Daily Journal. And I'm very happy to welcome you to this, our fourth episode of the Weekly Appellate Report, your source every Friday for the appellate week that was, featuring commentary from California practitioners, jurists, and academics. I'm very excited to get to today's program. We'll be talking about guns, religion, contraception, and, no less polarizing, the rigorous demands of Article Three standing. Or, perhaps not so rigorous depending on how one reads Justice Alito's majority opinion in a case we'll speak about presently. Three outstanding guests will join the podcast this week to speak about two rulings from the U.S. Supreme Court and one from the Ninth Circuit that issued this week. First, Professor Erwin Chemerinsky, Dean of the UC Irvine School of Law, and noted constitutional law expert, will visit to talk about the Ninth Circuit's ruling in the case of Teixeira versus the County of Alameda, which reckoned with the Second Amendment and the scope of protection it provides to those parties, like the plaintiffs here, seeking to engage in the commercial sale of firearms. Specifically at issue in this case is a county ordinance that the plaintiffs claim entirely forecloses new gun stores from opening within the unincorporated areas of Alameda County. Incidentally, and as a bit of foreshadowing, the responsibility to deliver this opinion fell to Judge O'Scanlan, perhaps the circuit's most zealous Second Amendment champion. Next, we'll speak with M.C. Sangaila, a partner at the law firm of Haynes & Boone, who will discuss the Supreme Court's ruling for Monday in Spokio v. Robbins, which addressed the seemingly technical but massively important question of whether the bare violation of a federal statute without a further showing of concrete harm, is enough to provide a plaintiff with standing to maintain a claim in federal court. The answer, delivered by Justice Alito, holds enormous ramifications, especially for attorneys like Ms. Sangaila, who often defend class action lawsuits. Finally, Professor Leslie Griffin from the University of Nevada Las Vegas School of Law will discuss a rather anticlimactic U.S. Supreme Court ruling in Zubik v. Burwell a case accepted to resolve the matter of whether governmental accommodations in relation to the contraceptive mandate of the Affordable Care Act had gone far enough to satisfy the rights of religiously affiliated nonprofits. Instead, in a cursory opinion, the court took no position on the case's merits and thereby left the outcome of this dispute and a number of important issues open for future litigation. Don't forget you can receive CLE credit for having listened to this program. You can find a link to a short true-false test on the page at dailyjournal.com where this podcast appears. And with that, let's get to my conversation with Dean Irwin Chemerinsky. I'm very excited to welcome our first guest on the program, Dean Irwin Chemerinsky. Mr. Chemerinsky is the founding dean of the UC Irvine School of Law, a relatively nascent law school, but one that I believe already is on the cusp of the U.S. News and World Report Top 25. Mr. Chemerinsky is a well-known scholar in many areas, principal among them constitutional law. The phrase, so-and-so wrote the book on such and such is often metaphorically applied, but in this instance, it can be literally applied. Mr. Chemerinsky's book on constitutional law, I know from personal experience, is an invaluable resource for law students. Mr. Chemerinsky, thanks very much for being on the show. It's truly my pleasure. Thank you. Okay, so the case we're talking about here is Teixeira versus County of Alameda. The named plaintiff here, John Teixeira, sought to open a gun store in the unincorporated area of Alameda County. And we can note here that the store could be more charitably described. It sought to provide safety lessons and gunsmithing services, or a range of services, but for simplicity's sake, we'll, we'll call it a gun store. But Teixeira and his associates ran into what turned out to be a relatively prohibitive 
impediment in the form of a county regulation. Is that correct? Well, of course, it's disputed between the majority and the dissent how prohibitive this regulation actually is with regard to gun stores. But there is an ordinance that says in order to open a gun store, a permit's needed. No one questions it's constitutional to require a permit for a business like this or any other business to exist. And there's three requirements in order to get a permit. First, the store has to have the necessary state and federal licenses. That's not controversial. Second, it has to store firearms and ammunition lawfully. That's not controversial. It's the third requirement that is controversial, and that's the focus of the lawsuit. This says that the proposed location of the business is not within 500 feet of a residentially zoned district, elementary, middle, or high school, preschool or daycare center, other firearm sales businesses, or liquor stores or establishments in which liquor is served. And the question here is whether that provision violates the Second Amendment. Okay. Now, that distance regulation did prevent him from uh, opening a store in the location that he intended. I believe it was something like 450 feet from one of those disqualifying locations. And so he filed suit in district court with a few different claims. The one we'll focus on and the one, indeed, that the Ninth Circuit reckoned with is his Second Amendment claim that this ordinance uh, violated his Second Amendment right or violated the Second Amendment, at least. Um, But the district court disposed of these claims pretty quickly. uh, Is that correct? That's right. It's very important to understand the procedural posture of this case. I think in order to understand what the Ninth Circuit did, it's important to realize that the district court granted the defendant's motion to dismiss for failure to state a claim, the motion of 12b-6 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. And so this case comes to the Ninth Circuit just on the allegations of the complaint. And we'll get into it, but tell me why that's so important. The plaintiff's complaint alleges that as a result of this ordinance, there's no place in the unincorporated area of Alameda County in which they're going to be able to open a gun store. Now, whether that's a true statement or not is much disputed, but for purposes of a motion to dismiss, the allegation of the complaint must be accepted as true. Is it fair to say then that if the Ninth Circuit has to accept those allegations as true, then the precise issue addressed by the Ninth Circuit is whether or not it's unconstitutional if an ordinance entirely forecloses the opening of a new gun store. Is that what they're they're looking at? Yes. In fact, the majority opinion says, and I quote, though such an assertion may yet prove false, there's no way to tell that from the face of the complaint. A motion to dismiss is assessed from the face of the complaint. And so you state the issue exactly right. Is this ordinance based on what's been alleged in the complaint, unconstitutional? Or at least is there a claim that it's unconstitutional since it's on a motion to dismiss for failure to state a claim? Right. Then let's get right into the meat of the majority opinion. What, in Judge O'Scanlan's view, is is wrong with the district court's approach? I think what's most important is that Judge O'Scanlan finds that the Second Amendment includes a right to purchase and sell firearms. That is the key premise of the case, and it's actually where the Court of Appeals disagrees with the district court. I'll also say, when we come back and talk about it, there's nothing in any Supreme Court case that has ever addressed this issue. And Judge O'Scanlan acknowledges that. He says, once it's accepted 
that the Second Amendment includes the right to purchase and sell firearms, then the question is, does this violate the Second Amendment? And he says, it's a two-step analysis. First, does the ordinance burden the Second Amendment? And then second, does the ordinance meet the level of scrutiny? And he says, in terms of the former question, there is a right to acquire weapons. If a right exists to have a weapon, he says there has to be a right to acquire weapon. And he says, therefore, as to the second question, heightened scrutiny is appropriate. And it appears that he uses intermediate scrutiny based on how close this is to the core of the Second Amendment and the severity of the burden. So the case is sent back to the district court, but with a clear indication that at least these two judges in the Ninth Circuit would regard this as an unconstitutional ordinance based on the facts of the complaint. Okay, now at one point, Judge O'Scanlan notes that um, one of the more significant cases in this presidential context, D.C. versus Heller, a Supreme Court case from a few years ago, which dealt with a, I believe, a handgun ban in the District of Columbia. Judge O'Scanlan notes that in that opinion, the court wrote that nothing, in our opinion, should be taken to cast doubt on longstanding laws imposing conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of arms. Those measures, the court wrote, are presumptively lawful regulatory measures. But... In Judge O'Scanlan's view, at least, and Judge B's view, I believe, uh, this ordinance did not fall under the aegis expressed by Heller. Why not? Let me back up just a second and talk about Heller. Sure. District Columbia versus Heller involved a 32-year-old D.C. ordinance that prohibited private ownership and possession of handguns. It also imposed restrictions on long guns. The Supreme Court, five to four, declared that ordinance unconstitutional. It was the first time in all of American history in which any law was found to violate the Second Amendment. Justice Scalia wrote for the court and said that the Second Amendment protects the right of people to have guns in their home for the sake of security. The court went no further than that. So it didn't consider whether there's a right to have guns outside the home. It didn't talk about whether there's a right to purchase or sell guns. It didn't indicate the level of scrutiny that was being used. So here in Tashara, the Ninth Circuit is going substantially beyond Heller and saying the right to purchase and use weapons. And Judge O'Scanlan then said, focusing on the language that you read, that there's not a long-standing tradition of imposing restrictions with regard to the location of gun stores. He said there's a long-standing tradition of keeping people with a felony conviction from having a gun. That's what Heller was referring to, not this. And in fact, such as Scanlon's opinion goes all the way back to Blackstone in saying that there is a long-standing tradition of a right to sell, to buy guns, and that therefore doesn't fit into the situation where the government can regulate. We touched on the heightened level of scrutiny that Judge O'Scanlan suggests, but it's safe to say he doesn't exactly articulate what level is necessary, intermediate, strict, something in between. Obviously, it can be tricky to precisely articulate an apt standard of scrutiny, but how would you articulate the level of scrutiny that Judge O'Scanlan is suggesting should be applied on remand? And again, here it's important to note that the Supreme Court has not articulated the level of scrutiny. There are only two Supreme Court cases that have struck down laws of violating the Second Amendment, District of Columbia versus Heller, and the other was two years later, McDonald versus City of Chicago, which said that the Second Amendment applies to state and local governments. Neither of these cases tell us the level of scrutiny. There is a split among the circuits. The Sixth Circuit, for example, has said strict scrutiny is to be used. 
A number of other circuits have said intermediate scrutiny is to be used. Some circuits are engaged in something much more like interest balancing. And it seems that Judge Scanlon was pointing towards something more like balancing. He said, we look at how close this is to the core of the Second Amendment, and we look at the severity of the burden. But in the end, I had the sense that he was saying intermediate scrutiny would apply Though, again, it wasn't entirely clear, but there's certainly the language of an immediate scrutiny towards the end of his opinion. Putting you on the spot for a second, if, if you were on the court and could articulate an exact standard of scrutiny that should be applied in regard to this ordinance, what would you say? A reasonableness test. Okay. In fact, I think there's a strong historical predicate that the state and local governments, federal government, have been able to regulate guns, and especially commercial transactions with guns, so long as it's reasonable. And... Depending on who replaces Justice Scalia, I would not be surprised to see, especially as a Democratic appointee, a five-person majority to say that the government can regulate, especially commercial transactions with guns, so long as it's reasonable. And here, keep in mind that since 1937, the Supreme Court has said that generally the government can regulate the economy, commercial transactions, so long as it's reasonable. Okay. Now, referring back to the notion that some of the underlying facts are under dispute, would your opinion change if the plaintiffs can show, in fact, this ordinance effectively acts as a de facto ban on new stores? There are no more viable locations. I think the key is that the Second Amendment protects a right of people to have guns in their homes for the sake of security. I'll agree that the right to have a gun has to include the right to purchase a gun. The right to have an abortion has to include the right to purchase an abortion. The government couldn't prohibit all monetary transactions to secure an abortion because that would effectively undermine the right. But I don't think there is any more right to set up a store selling guns than a right to set up a store selling anything else. So the question is not whether these people who want to set up a store are having their rights infringed. There is no constitutional right to have a store. I think the question is whether people who want guns in Alameda County have access to purchasing guns in Alameda County. Because so long as they have access to purchasing guns, then their right to have guns is fulfilled. And this was Judge Silverman's point in what's captioned a concurrence and dissent, but is really a dissent. He says, there's no gun owners here who are plaintiffs. He says, there's no proof that people who want to buy guns are unable to purchase them in Alameda County. And he says, when you clear away all the smoke, what we're dealing with here is a mundane zoning dispute dressed up as a Second Amendment challenge. The majority opinion rebuts Judge Silverman's claims, saying that, well, if you had this ordinance that said you couldn't open a bookstore here or there, that folks might feel differently. What do you make of, of that? Local governments have broad latitude to, to have zoning ordinances. And in fact, with regard to bookstores, and this is discussed in the opinion, the Supreme Court has allowed zoning ordinances with regard to the location of adult entertainment establishments. There's a case, Young versus American Mini Theaters, where Detroit had an ordinance that limited the number of adult bookstores and movie theaters on a city block, and the Supreme Court upheld it. There's a case, City of Renton versus Playtime Theaters, that said all the adult bookstores and movie theaters had to be in one corner of the city, occupying less than 5% of the area of the city, and the Supreme Court allowed it. Now, there you're dealing with First Amendment rights. So I think that local governments will have broad latitude with regard to zoning of gun stores and 
gun ranges and the like. So long as somebody who wants to purchase a gun has reasonable access to the gun. One more question on, on the scrutiny level. The majority opinion mentions this, that the district court at least sort of gave lip service to applying a heightened level of scrutiny and said that this ordinance would pass any applicable level of scrutiny because of a variety of important government interests, including safety in, in populated or sensitive areas, um, the government's interest in protecting against secondary effects of gun stores, potential increases in crime because of them or things like that, and also the government interest in protecting neighborhood aesthetics. But did Judge O'Scanlan think that it didn't actually go through the, the full motion of, of applying heightened scrutiny? Is that what the problem is? Because obviously the district court mentions heightened scrutiny. The district court also found that the Second Amendment wasn't implicated at all, and then went on and said if it were, it's met the heightened scrutiny test. Um, in fact, I think the district court found it had met any test. I think that what Judge O'Scanlan was saying here is that if the local government could prove that gun stores have undesirable secondary effects, then the local government can regulate the location of gun stores. So the government can regulate the location of adult entertainment establishments if it is reason to believe that they'll bring crime to the area. If a local government has good reason to believe that a gun store in a particular area might cause crime or pose safety risks, then Judge O'Scanlan said they could regulate it, but they've got to offer some basis for that belief. Okay. To wrap up, I'd like to know how you would foresee the future of this case. Do you think there's a chance potentially for an en banc review in front of the Ninth Circuit? If not, if it goes remanded to the district court, how would you see it playing out? And do you see any potential of this case making it to the U.S. Supreme Court docket? I think it's important to focus on who's the author of the opinion. Judge O'Scanlan is the most pro-gun rights judge on the Ninth Circuit. He may be the most pro-gun rights judge in the entire country. It's just coincidence that he keeps getting the Second Amendment cases. So two years ago, the Ninth Circuit decided Peruta versus County of San Diego. This involved whether or not a state law that required somebody to show good cause for a concealed weapons permit violated the Second Amendment. And Judge O'Scanlan wrote the opinion. It was two to one, with Chief Judge Sidney Thomas dissenting. And Judge, Thomas, Judge O'Scanlan's opinion struck down that part of the state law and as it was applied in San Diego County. The Ninth Circuit has granted en banc review, and we're waiting for the decision in Peruta. Judge O'Scanlan and Judge Bay are among the most conservative judges on the Ninth Circuit. Judge Silverman is much more of a moderate on the ideological scope of the Ninth Circuit. So my prediction is, like with Peruta, the whole night, the Ninth Circuit is going to grant en banc review in this case. Um, but I do think this is a case that ultimately could get to the Supreme Court because the premise of this decision is that the Second Amendment protects the commercial activity of selling guns. No Supreme Court case has ever suggested that. Also, the question is, What's enough for an infringement of the Second Amendment? Judge Silverman says, anyone who wants a gun can get one in Alameda County, assuming they meet all of the legal requirements. This isn't keeping anyone from lawfully getting a gun. Is restriction of the commercial activity enough to violate the Second Amendment? Maybe the Supreme Court will at some point take up that issue. Okay, well, we'll look forward to that potentially occurring, and we'll leave it here for now. Dean Chemerinsky, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking Truly to you. Truly my pleasure. I hope we'll get to do it again soon. 
Once again, that was Dean Erwin Chemerinsky from the University of California at Irvine School of Law. Now we'll move on to my conversation with M.C. Sangaila, in which we'll be discussing Spokio v. Robbins, a U.S. Supreme Court case filed this past Monday. Joining us now is M.C. Sangaila. Ms. Sangaila is a partner at Haynes & Boone in Orange County and helped file an amicus brief on behalf of the International Association for Defense Counsel. Ms. Sangaila, I know you've spoken to a number of media publications about this case, including Forbes and, and others. Uh, we appreciate you joining our humble podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me, Brian. We really appreciate it. You're most welcome. So we'll go ahead and jump right in. I'd like to briefly touch on a bit of the background of this case. So the original plaintiff, Thomas Robbins, is or, or was at the time of the filing of this case a, a single youngish man who was not terribly well off and not possessed of a graduate degree. Now enter Spokeo Incorporated, a, a company that aggregates individuals' information so it can be utilized by interested parties, uh, potential employers, marketing companies, I'd imagine. They were called a people search engine by the court. So Spokeo was enlisted, I believe, by a third party to provide information about Robbins, and it in inaccurately described him as being married in his 50s, being somewhat wealthy and in possession of a graduate degree. Do I have that right so far? That's right. And also that he was employed in a professional or a technical field. Okay. And, uh, and, and he was at the time looking unemployed and looking for a job. I see. So someone describing me as, as more wealthy than I am and more educated than I am doesn't sound terrible. What, what exactly is the, the problem here? Well, that, that's a really good point, Brian. And, and I think that that, that uh, backdrop you know, plays some role in this case because it causes one to wonder, you know, exactly what you said, which is what's so wrong with that. Right. Um, uh, it's not, it's not, uh, it's not as though um, the search engine painted him as, you know, something uh, less than what he was. Right. Um, but he said, you know, I'm, I was looking for a job and uh, gee, that it could have been that I looked overqualified for positions I was seeking if somebody looked me up on this search engine and might suggest that I want a higher salary or maybe I might not be willing to relocate because I have a family. All these various things were his, his sort of theories about why this was a bad thing that, that he was, you know, sort of promoted within the, within the search <laughs> engine. And he, he brought uh, an action in federal court under the Fair Credit Reporting Act on behalf of himself and, and also a potential class. Of, of folks who also had inaccurate reporting um, on the search engine. And the Fair Credit Reporting Act is one of many federal statutes that, that sort of incorporates within itself uh, what the statutory damages are. So in this case, gee, you know, the Fair Credit Reporting Act says that, you know, consumer reporting agencies of which Spokio kind of fits the definition have to follow reasonable procedures to assure maximum possible accuracy of consumer reports, and they can be liable for you know, up to $1,000 to any person who willfully fails to comply with the requirement of the act. So he, um, Robbins, alleged that Spokio did this willfully, and so um, he was entitled to recover these statutory damages, and also he had other other forms of relief that he wanted. But the preliminary question was whether he had standing to bring this claim. Right, right. And the district court held that he did not have standing to bring the claim. Is that right? 
That's right. The district court decision was that, yes, there's no standing and the case is dismissed before even getting to a you know class certification question. And then the Ninth Circuit reversed and said, no, you know, we, we think that standing, the Article Three standing requirements are met here because Congress has the power to confer standing in this circumstance under this statute. And uh, interests protected by statutory rights are sufficiently concrete and particularized that Congress can elevate them. And then uh, Robbins had alleged something particular enough to him that Spokio had violated his statutory rights, not just the statutory rights of other people. And so he had a personal interest um, that was individualized, and that was sufficient to give rise to standing that met the constitutional requirements. But now before the case went any further than, than that, this particular question was raised on appeal and cert was granted at the U.S. Supreme Court, the issue just to, of standing, correct? Correct. Right. And and this is actually the, the issue that the court did end up deciding in the case and that was in the cert petition has been raised quite a bit because, as I mentioned, there are a lot of federal statutes with statutory damage provisions. Right. And there was a lot of debate and actually some conflict among the different circuits with regard to a range of statutes beyond the Fair Credit Reporting Act from Cable Piracy Act to the Telephone Consumer Protection Act to the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, all of these various statutes that Congress was very busy, like more than a dozen of them, that set the amount per violation that that is due if someone is, is found liable. And the plaintiffs in a lot of these cases were saying, hey, look, I fit the statute. You know, my my I clearly have standing. The statute tells me I have a claim. And so that should be enough. Um, for me to not only assert my claim, but also purport to represent a, a class of plaintiffs in federal court. And so these various statutory uh, violations, they may be $500, many of them are quite a bit more, but, um, but those add up when you start putting a lot of plaintiffs together. And so this was really becoming um, kind of a vexing issue, both for the plaintiff bar and the defense bar, because if that was really all you needed to show, then, you know, then there's a lot more actions in, in federal court and a lot lower standard for standing. And so this this question of who ultimately gets to determine that, is it Congress by enacting the statute or is there some other element that the courts need to do as a matter of constitutional interpretation? And if so, what is that? Okay. But it seemed to me that there was a bit of sort of muddiness with the question presented. I know Spokio outlined it the way that you sort of have, saying the question is whether if you have a violation of a federal statute that has a damages clause, that that's enough. Simply the violation itself. Uh, you don't mm-hmm. need to show anything. A plaintiff wouldn't need to show anything further. But uh, Robin said that's not exactly the question. Here, there was a violation. And because of my potential employment prospects being dampered, there is some harm. So what exactly was the question presented here to the court? Well, it's interesting because it's it's what did the court actually decide too, right? The, the court uh, sort of answered the first question and sent the other question down right. to the Ninth Circuit to assess, which which gives raise to its own head scratching uh, somewhat. But to the extent there was a dispute about that and some you know potential fear that that the the court might once again dismiss as improvidently granted another one of these standing cases. The court solved that really by the way it decided the case. It said, well, we'll, we'll, we will address 
the you know the the first part of the question, the question that Spokio posed, which is you know by authorizing a private right of action and just a bare violation of federal statute, is that enough? The court says no, not in this case. And then the next question is, well, but what if I allege something else beyond that? You know, is that enough? And the court said, well, you have to show something concrete and actual. And if you do that, you you might establish standing. And the Ninth Circuit will tell you whether you have done that. Right. You kind of hinted at this a bit. You say um, the majority opinion here sets up that question and does not answer it, which seems to be a bit unsatisfying. Judging, I know, from many amicus briefs, including the one you helped helped write, it seemed like the resolution of this case stood to have a pretty outsized impact on, you know, whichever way it came down. Um, are people sort of right to feel a bit unsatisfied by what came out on Monday? Well, I think I think um, first dis- dissatisfaction is sort of is relative, particularly in this context. I mentioned that. There was previously a case, and there was previously a case four years ago in which the court heard oral argument involving um, the Real Estate Settlement Procedures Act in the case called First American versus Edwards. And that question had a similar, um, similar question with regard to these federal statutes. And, you know, what if in that case, what if the homeowners were really not hurt? Uh, did they actually, you know, could they actually state a claim in federal court? And the court took that all the way through argument and very, very close um, to the time when everyone thought the opinion would come out, then dismissed the case as improvidently granted with, with no explanation. So that's a lot more disappointing than actually getting an opinion, as we did in Spokio. So, you know, it's sort of all relative. <laughs> so it's better. We at least got the, we got the question answered, which the court had before it four years previous. And we get some we get some clarity, but not as much as we would like. And, and I think some of that comes from the fact that, you know, in our justice system, courts provide guidance one case at a time. And the law develops by analogizing or distinguishing the facts and the analysis in each case. And here, the court sort of stops short. It reinforces its prior case law and, and confirming that you need both particularized and concrete harm. And it talks a little bit about what that might look like, it clearly keeping in mind some of these other statutes that are out there, because the court has been told by the various amicus that, you know, this affects a dozen or more federal statutes, keeping in mind these sort of privacy statutes and other things where there's in, intangible harm. They, they try to sort of cover the bases, but they don't actually apply the law to the facts of this case. And they're very careful not to express an opinion and say, you know, Ninth Circuit is free to do what it wants to do in this. We, we are not expressing opinion at this point about what the outcome of this case should be. And, and that feels more like, you know, kind of like you thought you were getting a ride all the way home and you got, you know, dropped off halfway there. Right. Or, you know, kind of one of those like to be continued things that flash across the TV screen on a, a you know, season ending cliffhanger. That's kind of how it feels. You're kind of like, well, I thought you were going to take me all the way there and, and, you know, give me some guidance. And, and the majority opinion does do that to some extent, saying, you know, there could be, uh, say, an incorrect zip code might not be enough, right? How are right. you actually harmed by that? But on the other hand, I think adding to the confusion is you have the dissent from Ginsburg and Sotomayor in which really their only difference with the majority seems to be whether it's really clear from the pleading that the plaintiff has already made his case or not. 
I mean, they kind of go along, you know, with the general principles that the court has, but ultimately parts ways in saying in their view, they think that, you know, he's definitely done enough. And they kind of explain why they why they think this is enough and, and their mind is not a speculative injury or de minimis injury. And so I think that also adds to some of the confusion because you have yeah. these two different parts of the opinion trying to give some guidance. I think they recognize that they're not exactly giving that kind of particular guidance that would be helpful to people. But they also want to let the Ninth Circuit do what it's going to do. So there's some clarity, but not enough. And then um, really it requires, Spokio is not an opinion that can or should be read alone. You know, there are a lot of points, there are a couple of sentences, I think that you pointed out as well, that are a little bit, they seem on their face confusing or maybe even conflicting in the opinion itself. But then they, uh, the majority cites other cases, and so you sort of have to dig into those cases to see what they're referring to. So it really adds to the body of the court's jurisprudence about Article Three standing, and you really have to look at it holistically, I think. Yeah, I'd like to elaborate just a little bit more on that question of the guidance that the court has now afforded the Ninth Circuit. Like you say, it sounds like Justice Alito at least makes one bright-line rule saying that a bare statutory violation is not enough, at least in this case. But he says there must be more, there must be particularized and concrete harm. That notwithstanding, it sounds like the bar he sets up for defining concrete harm is relatively low. He says the harm need not be tangible. He says that a risk of harm might be enough. And he references how sometimes, for example, in the context of tort cases, it can be difficult to show concrete injury, but that doesn't necessarily negate standing. And he also mentions, I believe, he says that a mere violation of statutorily granted procedural rights without anything additional being shown could be enough for standing in certain circumstances, just not this one. So it seems like he says one thing, but then creates this hurdle that doesn't seem particularly formidable. Two things about that. First, um, the part where where the opinion is helpful (laughs) and is concrete. (laughs) Um, has to do with the really a question that was, um, you know, debated for some time, which is that can Congress does does a congressional statute automatically give rise to standing? Okay. And and the the answer is you know the answer is no, it doesn't. So we know that. So we know that there is a separate analysis that the court must do that is in addition to that in in addition to that statute. Um, which is consistent with all of the court's longstanding jurisprudence. And there's a lot of cases talking about what the Article Three requirement means. They're perhaps equally Delphic, but, you know, a distinct and palpable, palpable injury, an abstract injury is not enough. The whole point of this is that we want a live controversy that we can actually resolve because we are a court system that resolves actual controversies, not abstract theory. And so all of this is meant to to make sure that the court has a case that it can actually offer redress in and that is actually ripe and ready in which somebody actually has some injury. So to some of the points that you mentioned, though, in the majority opinion, they do seem confusing on their face. But then when you start digging into some of the cases that the majority cites, it, it helps a little bit. I can't, I'm not going to say it completely answers all of the questions. But for example, that something can be an intangible harm. Well, 
that's citing to Federal Election Commission versus Aikens and referring to free speech and free exercise cases. Well, yes, you know, voting, political rights, and free speech and free exercise are very valued rights, which we probably couldn't quantify, but nonetheless, we're going to say that that intangible harm is enough to give rise to standing. And then with regard to the risk of harm, the majority cites Clapper versus Amnesty International, which is another Alito opinion from um, 2013. And in that case, the court rejected some, some arguments about standing that Amnesty International made with regard to surveillance and concluded that they did not have the requisite risk of impending harm uh, because they couldn't show that they were actually under surveillance or anyone they were communicating with were under surveillance. And the fact that they had some hypothetical future harm, that wasn't enough. It was just sort of rested on a speculative chain of possibilities, and that's not enough. So, um, so I think by investigating those cases and what was going on there, you can start to get a little bit more substance to what the court is talking about. But I think because the court was aware of all these other statutes and also aware that it really wasn't providing the same kind of guidance it would if it were applying the law to the facts of the case, it kind of wanted to cover its bases, right? There may be some statute where this works. There may be some other statute where it doesn't. You Here are all your considerations you should think about um, in, in applying the standing inquiry. So what it amounts to is that it ends up a lot more work to be done in the district court and the courts of appeal in terms of each particular statute, each particular plaintiff's claim, what they've alleged as being their injury. All of those things are going to play important roles in applying the case. Sure. Obviously, the court could have obviated that future work by by going ahead and answering the question that it reframed. Why do you think it, it stopped short of doing that? Well, I think... I think to some extent, it's a measure of the varying perspectives of the members of the court. I mean, at, at oral argument, it was none too clear that the court, that the decision was actually going to come out this way. There was a lot of questioning on both sides. And some of the members of the court who ended up joining in the majority opinion had different perspectives on this. So Justice Kagan, for example, was very active at oral argument and well, wouldn't dissemination of false information in a credit report be a concrete injury? It seems like it is to me. I would feel harmed. You know, Breyer talked about psychic harm as well as economic harm. And then, of course, Sotomayor, who ended up in the dissent with Ginsburg, had um, you know, similar views. So, so I suspect you couldn't get a group that agreed on that sure. point, but could agree on the larger general point. Okay, that a bear violation by itself doesn't mm-hmm, right. arise. Sure. Yeah. Then sort of looking forward, we have at least the opinion of two justices, Justice uh, Ginsburg and Justice Sotomayor, as to whether this, this harm is in fact concrete and particularized enough to grant mm-hmm. standing. Um, do you think with the standard now sort of relayed out by Justice Alito that the, the harm claimed here could meet would meet that standard? In your no, personal I opinion. Do- yeah. yeah, no, I, do, I don't think so. I don't think that it does. Um, whether the Ninth Circuit panel will come out the same way right. is, is a different question, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but no, I don't think that it gives rise to the, the concrete injury that's required. Okay. And then how do you feel the, that the Ninth Circuit might come out on this? And do you feel, now that the Supreme Court 
has punted this issue a little bit, do you think it could easily sort of rebound back to them after the Ninth Circuit rules, either one way or the other? Well, I think, uh, first of all, if the panel is inclined to to say, yes, uh, we said standing and we mean standing, um, and we're going to stick with that view, then, you know, the roadmap for them is done by the dissent of Ginsburg and Sotomayor. So can follow that reasoning and, and, and do that. But either way, I think there's a likelihood the case could go back up to um, the Supreme Court. And, and even more importantly is the, the number of cases that were stayed pending Spokio. There were dozens of cases under various statutes that were stayed in federal courts across the country waiting for Spokio for this question of standing. And, um, and so now all of those will move forward and inevitably some of those also will move up through the court system. And even if it isn't Spokio that makes it back up to the court, uh, I think it's inevitable that one, one follow-on case from Spokio will because the, the question, you know, there's still some open questions um, after Spokio. Okay. Then to wrap up, noting that the, the final word on this issue has yet to be spoken, I know this case has been described as a win for defense counsel. How, how would you describe the magnitude of the, the win for the defense side? Well, I think it's it's a significant opinion and it's a positive opinion for for defendants because it does require a plaintiff to uh, do more than just allege a statutory violation. That that you know plaintiffs are going to have to be clear in their complaint about how they were actually and concretely injured, and some of them may not even be able to do that. So so the enormity of having a case dismissed before a class certification stage is important in itself. And then as some of the amicus briefs pointed out, there's also implications for the certification stage as well. If the, if the inquiry at the standing stage were as simplistic as, you know, do you just satisfy the statute, then it would be much more easy for the class to satisfy commonality as well, because there'd just be one common question about whether the statute was violated. And now with this inquiry, it's a lot, it's a lot more diffuse. So I think that the trickle-down effect of the opinion is, is, an, is a significant one. Okay. Uh, I think we'll leave it there and see what, uh, what the Ninth Circuit has to say when it ends up rendering its ruling. Ms. Sengaila, thanks very much for joining me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much, Brian. I really appreciate it. One more time, that was MC Sangaila, a partner at Haynes & Boone, joining us to speak about Spokio vs. Robbins. We'll now move on to my conversation with Professor Leslie Griffin from UNLV Law School to speak about Zubik vs. Burwell. Very pleased to welcome now Professor Leslie Griffin. She's a William S. Boyd Professor of Law at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas School of Law. Professor Griffin, thanks very much for being on the program. Happy to talk to you. Before we jump into the opinion, perhaps we could back up just slightly and set the context. So first, would you mind telling me briefly what the mandates are from the Affordable Care Act in terms of reproductive health coverage and contraceptive coverage? So the contraceptive mandate or benefit requirement, as we like to call it, is part of the preventive health services requirement of the Affordable Care Act. And so in order to implement the preventive health services 
the Department of Health and Human Services came up with a list of 20 FDA-approved contraceptives that should be covered by all employer insurance plans. And the goal here was that women need access to reproductive health care, right? They're more likely to use it if it's in their insurance coverage. And studies showed historically that women paid more for health insurance than men because of the cost of reproductive care. Now, this requirement was objected to pretty much at the get-go from a variety of groups, largely religiously affiliated groups. Pretty early on, churches received an exemption to this requirement, correct? Right. There was an original complaint that by passing this so-called contraceptive mandate, the Obama administration had declared war on religious liberty, and that all this was happening before the 2012 election. And so the first thing the administration did was say, oh, well, we want to protect the churches. And the theory there was the houses of worship share members of one faith, and so you wouldn't be likely to be having religious disagreement about contraception. And so the Obama administration said that the tax code identifies purely religious houses of worship, and we're going to do the same to exempt them from the contraceptive requirement. But then, of course, what happened is the religious nonprofits, there was an immediately, so we had had kind of the rhetoric, the political rhetoric about the war of religion. And then a number of religious nonprofits led at that time by the University of Notre Dame and some 20 to 30 other Catholic schools and hospitals filed a lawsuit saying that they, the nonprofits, wanted the exact church exemption. They wanted to be completely exempt from the requirement of the mandate, meaning those employees don't get the coverage at all. There's no accommodation for them. And so they went to court and asked for the complete exemption. But the Obama administration instead gave them an accommodation that said, look, you have to tell us you're opposed to contraception, and then we'll come up with an alternative way to get contraceptive insurance to your employees. In a bit more specific detail, say they object. Mm -hmm. What exactly do they have to do, and then then what happens after that? Well, let's take um, how it worked at a university. So let's say a Catholic university has both employees and students, and they have insurance companies. Through the university, you get your insurance coverage, whether you're an employer or student. And what the accommodation said is the university would notify the government. And the accommodation is taken different forms. You'd either notify your insurance company at one point, or you'd notify the government. And what you'd have to say is, we oppose contraceptive coverage. And then the employers and the university's obligation would stop. And the government would then tell the insurance company, hey, you've got to provide the coverage. And the insurance company would write separate letters to the students. So if you were a student or an employee, you would get a notice from an insurance company saying, oh, we're offering you insurance coverage for contraceptive services. And so the accommodation split the nonprofits away from the provision of insurance, making it two separate processes. So the religious nonprofit tells the government, we don't want to provide contraception. And the government says, okay, we needed to know. So now we can tell your insurance companies, you've got to provide coverage to this group of people. Okay. Now the petitioners here, religious nonprofits, deemed that accommodation not sufficient, hence bringing this lawsuit. Why wasn't that accommodation enough? Well, what they said was that it made them morally complicit in the provision of contraceptive coverage. And so they argued that under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, this moral complicity substantially burdened their religious freedom. And the moral complicity was, they said, you know, you're setting by signing the form, we set in motion insurance coverage for the employees. 
Now, the counter-argument that most of the circuit courts of appeals adopted was the argument that that was wrong, that it was federal law, as Judge Posner wrote in the Seventh Circuit. Once the religious nonprofits say no, it's federal law that actually triggers the insurance coverage. It's not the signing of the form. But the battle went back and forth with the religious nonprofits saying, we don't want to be morally complicit in the provision of contraception. I see. So as you touch on, a number of circuit courts in the country weighed in on this challenge. The first several cited against petitioners, but I think it was the Eighth Circuit that right. uh, held mm-hmm. differently. That's right. So under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, plaintiffs has to have to establish a substantial burden on their religion. And if they do, the government has to prove that it used the least restrictive means to reach a compelling government interest. And eight of nine courts of appeals ruled against the plaintiffs. Some of them only did the substantial burden analysis, saying you failed your substantial burden. And that part of that was the belief that signing the form isn't a substantial burden. Others did reach the full analysis and say that the government had met its burden. But then the Eighth Circuit ruled um, for the petitioners, and that created the circuit split that got the, the case to the Supreme Court. Back when these cases were knocking around the circuit courts and seeing each circuit court rule generally uniformly, I recall thinking, and I thought the prevailing opinion at that time was that these challenges would all fail and that this case or this issue would not reach the U.S. Supreme Court. Were you surprised that a circuit split was created and that it's gotten this far? Well, the Eighth Circuit, the Eighth Circuit just looked at it differently. And the difference was most of the courts heard substantial burden. I think it's kind of a common sense reaction. You hear, really, you're not going to sign the form. And most of the courts were saying, if conscientious objectors didn't have to tell the government they were COs, what would happen? How could we have any kind of system of conscientious objection if objectors don't even have to notify the government? How would the government know? And so most courts focused on that kind of substantial burden analysis. But the difference was the Eighth Circuit they focused on the penalties that the religious nonprofits would have to pay if they didn't combine, and they said those penalties were a substantial burden on religion. So it was very interesting, right? At the time, you could say, okay, well, that's a different approach. The other courts didn't see it that way, but the Eighth Circuit said that if the schools faced substantial financial penalties for not um, providing the coverage, then their religion was substantially burdened. And so, uh, right, they, they really saw the substantial burden analysis differently. Okay, so then the circuit split is created, the case is granted cert, oral argument is heard, but then sort of an interesting wrinkle occurs. After oral argument, the court orders rebriefing at this pretty late stage in the litigation. Tell me more about that. Well, it was very odd rebriefing, right? Because the hard part of these cases has turned down to be the least restrictive means analysis. Because the problem with the least restrictive means analysis under RIFRA is in many ways it lets you keep dreaming up something that's less restrictive. So the, the nonprofit said, you know what would be less restrictive than having us notify the government is if the government created a contraceptive-only insurance policy that everybody could have. And you think about that, that's not really very realistic. And so at the oral argument, there was all this talk about what would be the less restrictive means. And I think part of the problem in the case is that everybody's a little puzzled about what insurance policies there are and what policies work and what policies don't work. And so everybody was left kind of wondering, well, what can the government do in the area of insurance? And so in a way, the court stepped in to say, hey, maybe you could come up with 
something better. I mean, so in a way, it was weird for the court. It was like an attempt at mediation, right? Would you two sides come forward with a policy that you can both agree to? And the court itself seemed to suggest, could it be that if everybody started from scratch where the religious nonprofit had a new insurance policy and that one wasn't used to provide contraception, maybe everybody could be happy with that. But the government seemed to be seeking for some middle ground and even encouraging the parties to figure it out. And all that happens because of the least restrictive means policy. So it was a very unusual effort by the court to kind of urge everybody to compromise. Sure. And so at that stage, the court essentially seems to say, yeah, you you guys figure it out on your own. And now in the opinion filed on Monday, a very short opinion of just a few pages, they seem to be saying the same thing. They, they don't weigh in on the merits. They don't really give a final word at all or any guidance. And it seems like they're kicking it back down to the circuit courts and just telling these parties to find a, a more suitable compromise. Um, walk us through this opinion. Is that a fair assessment? I think that is a fair assessment. I mean, at the time, the case was argued, right? All eyes were on Justice Kennedy, wondering what Justice Kennedy would think about the religious nonprofits cases, because Justice Kennedy was the fifth vote in the Hobby Lobby case, the other case about the contraceptive mandate. And so we think now, without Justice Scalia on the court, that what, I mean, originally we thought a 4-4 tie, of course, as you know, a 4-4 tie on the court, which is what it seems we have, would usually result in the courts just saying, well, we can't reach a decision, and therefore the lower court decisions stand. Which would have meant what eight of nine certain eight of nine circuits the mandate would have been upheld, and so there are a few unusual features, right? The usual thing for the court to do when it's divided four four is to let the lower court opinion stand. But now instead of letting the lower court opinion stand, we have a remand to say go over it again and try a different argument. And so we're back to where we started, where it's going to be up to the religious nonprofits to say, well, here's what we could agree to. And so what will be interesting to see is if there's any accommodation that the religious nonprofits will accept. Right. I mean, it seems that by kicking this opinion back down, the court is implicitly suggesting, or maybe they're expressly suggesting, that there exists some less restrictive method of ensuring this coverage. We sort of touched on it a bit. What do you think that less restrictive method might be that they're envisioning? I mean, the the only one that the court seems to believe is possible is for all the religious nonprofits to be able to start with new insurance contracts with their insurers. And never have to notify anybody in the government about their opposition to contraception. Um, And the court has kind of said, you know, anybody who's in the litigation, the government already knows who you are. So presumably the government could tell some insurance company to start providing coverage. You know, right? I don't know if the religious, if that's exactly what the religious nonprofits want. You know, one of the briefs from the religious nonprofits said they won't be they won't accept it unless there's a totally separate insurance policy where the woman has a separate insurance card, right, separate coverage, two totally divorced systems. And yet the government has said that that's not seamless enough, that women shouldn't have to have two insurance policies, two cards. And so, it's, I mean, you can tell it's, it's hard to figure exactly what the final result could look like. 
Right. Especially now, since the religious nonprofits have wanted the exemption all along. Yeah, that's what I was going to get to. So ostensibly, now the parties are sent to go try to compromise further to reach a suitable accommodation. But you make this point in a column that you contributed to SCOTUS blog this week that the end game, it seems like, for these petitioners is to get the same exemption as the churches. That's, that's what they wanted, and they, I mean, they, they tried to get that argument on First Amendment grounds. That was in their cert petitions in the first place, and the court didn't take the First Amendment part of it. But they, they want the exemption, and so it's just not clear how hard and far they're going to push. I mean, you could take this remand as a sign that they're winning, they're doing pretty well, and the burden is going to fall to the government to, figure out what it can do. Now, the court did tell, did say that women are entitled to seamless contraceptive coverage. And so it seems that if a woman has to have two different policies or gets different expense or has to go to a different doctor, all of which are possibilities under the nonprofit options, then the lower courts would say, we don't have to accept that. You know, we're going to have to hope that the courts can figure some way to do it. But you see the dangers of this least restrictive means test of RFRA, right? It's hard to know exactly what mechanism is going to be the thing that that satisfies the nonprofits. Of course, the courts of appeals could again say that um, the nonprofits can't have everything they want. Sure. It seems a bit interesting that the court of last resort for the United States of America is seems to be acting more like you know the mediator you might hire to handle a business dispute you have with a colleague. Um, what what sort of to be made of this peculiar stance taken by the court? Well, in a way, it's the problem of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Right? In the early RIFRA cases, the court said that one oral argument, right? One of the one lawyer said, oh, well, the courts are going to wind up having to make all these factual legislative-like distinctions. And the justices said, well, that's what Congress told us to do, right? So it's this odd mix where Congress provided a statute, and now the court is saying, oh, the statute authorizes us to make legislative-style judgments. I mean, that's, it's, it's, it shows the deep flaws of of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and what an uns- what a bad piece of legislation it's turned out to be and how exactly it's involved the court in making these determinations that Congress should make, right? So you have the court deciding what the least restrictive means, right? You have the court deciding, well, what will work in the legislative process. If you think about it, we have the court trying to figure out if it's possible for the government to offer a contraceptive-only insurance program when really only the lawyers at the court didn't really know that question. Really only legislative groups do it. And so I think the the future now holds that maybe people will start to see in more detail the real problems with the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Sure, yeah. Sort of taking a a look at the broader context that relates to that statute, you mentioned in your SCOTUS blog article that there's sort of a number of different areas and, and different groups of folks that could be implicated or that could run into problems based on, one, the statute, and then also sort of the unresolved questions here that the court left open. Well, first, the next right, the, the mandate is really about women's rights, and the religious organizations push back against women's rights. But you figure there's equal opposition now to LGBT rights. And so, right, the concern now is that for the federal government, you'll have, right, uh, referred defenses to Title VII, 
cases, right? And so anytime there's a discrimination claim now, the RFRA is there as a defense. And of course, this case also sets off the issue that Right, states, as we know, also pass their own Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And so any legislature can try to protect religion through a statute. And the more you do that, the more you might put at risk LGBT rights and women's rights. So, right, we have the discussion about, right, should commercial businesses be allowed to discriminate against gay and lesbian couples on the grounds of their of religious beliefs? And so this idea that religion is a defense to all kinds of laws is a really dangerous idea over the long run, because we like to think that the anti-discrimination laws protect everybody. And we don't want to see, I don't want to see religions opting out of those anti-discrimination laws by saying, oh, it burdens my religion to provide insurance to a same-sex couple, right? I don't believe in supporting LGBT families, so why should they get insurance? And sure. so it's the slippery slope. You know, the RIFRA attitude, if not the statute itself, RIFRA-like statutes in the states and the RIFRA attitude create this undermining of the anti-discrimination laws. So it sounds like certainly some resolution in this context would have been would have been helpful, not provided here by the opinion. Uh, but looking forward, what do you see happening in this case? It's, so it's going to bounce back to the circuit courts. Do you think that'll be the end of the matter? The parties will figure out some other arrangement? Or do you see this ending up back in front of the Supreme Court, potentially when it has nine justices with which it could cobble together a proper majority? I mean, Justice Sotomayor's concurrence specifically said, and the court, and as well as the procurium opinion, we don't decide anything on the merits, meaning we don't say what the substantial burden is and so forth. And so it's hard to see, as long as there's one circuit out there, that the, the Eighth Circuit comes back, as long as if, if there's no common ground, it seems like inevitably a case, this case or one like it would get back to the court and it would be up to who Justice Nine was. So um, maybe, I mean, maybe all maybe all the circuit courts will. will um, I get right. If all, if all the circuit courts ruled for the nonprofits, then it would it would end that way. But uh, um, I mean, I think that as you know, this shows the dangers of not having a full court. Yeah, it certainly seems that that way. Okay, well, I think we'll go ahead and leave it there, and and stay tuned for very interesting events sure to to unfold in the future. Right. This litigation has been going on for a long time, and so it's still going on for longer. It, it sure will. Professor Griffin, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate your, your thoughtful contributions. Well, thank you for asking me. And with that, our program for May 20th, 2016 is complete. I'd like to take one more opportunity to thank all of my guests, Dean Erwin Chimerinsky of UCI School of Law, MC Sungaila from Haynes and Boone, and Leslie Griffin from UNLV Law School. I'd also like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. It's sincerely appreciated. Don't forget that you can receive CLE credit for having listened. Just find the link to the CLE short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this podcast appears. Once again, I'm Brian Cardile, and I look forward to speaking with you next Friday. Have a great week. <laughs>